we got to a, a fork in the path, and I remember distinctly a voice in my head saying, go left. And so we went left. And the squad behind me went right, and they got wiped out. I'm sorry, I just, sometimes it's tough. But yeah, yeah, the voice in my head said, go left. Jim Weinstein's stay on the battlefields of Vietnam was defined by one close call after another. He has, over the many years since, relived them all. It's painful, but in a way therapeutic to share them within limits of his own peace of mind. Fifty-plus years ago, Jim was on a mission to find himself. He wrestled with drink and drugs and the agony of a volcanic relationship with his father, a World War II veteran, who fought at the bloody Battle of Remagen and suffered his own PTSD. His mission led Jim to enlist in the Marines. Both tragedy and good fortune would follow him from day one in Vietnam until the day he came home to his mom, dad, brothers and sisters, all of whom had been told mistakenly that Jim had been killed in battle. This is Jim's story. Is it fair to say that growing up you took a few wrong turns along the way? I absolutely did. I uh, grew up in Chicago. I was 10 years old when we moved to Skokie, and there were already gangs in the neighborhood, and you know they were calling me names. My last name was a Jewish last name, and a lot of these young Catholic boys didn't like it. So I learned how to fight and defend myself. And so when I got into high school, I tended to be a person who would if I saw somebody being beat up, I would jump in, you know, to, to defend them. And my dad, taught, my dad was responsible, taught me how to fight, and and I was uh, I was pretty pretty strong, pretty good shape. And all through high school, I did that, and I played uh, quite a bit of sports. And I always played, you know, the the position that took the most beating because I was, you know, wonder. I don't know what I was doing, trying to prove myself to myself because I had such a poor self-image. Was that in part due to the relationship you had with your father? Absolutely. Um, I was 16 years old. My dad and I had agreed that I could go to meet my friends at the pool because we're going to go look for girls. And he had me painting a section of fence every day during the summer, which, whether it needed or not, that was his discipline, I guess. And so I said, I'm, I'm going to go to the pool now. He said, no, you're not. I said, well, you told me yesterday. I could. He said, no, I didn't. And I said, well, I, you tell me I can go. I'm going to go. And he grabbed me by the shirt and punched me in the mouth and broke my jaw. And so I didn't go to the pool. Yes. <laughs> went to the hospital. But, yeah, he was. He, so this is a very difficult relationship yeah. that's brought on in part, would you say, by his experience in World War II? Absolutely. Because when I started working on my own PTSD, I realized he had all the symptoms and some of them were worse than mine because he was always an angry guy. He had a very short fuse and he would always you know, just explode. He was at Remagen. Yeah. That's the only, that's the only event that I knew about because he didn't tell me. He wouldn't talk to me. But my mom told me about it. She said, you have to give your father a break because he's got issues. <laughs> so we had a terrible time growing up. So one of the paths you follow takes you down the road of drink and drugs. Yeah. At the end of junior year, I started, I got into, I was with a group of guys and we were experimenting. We were doing... Marijuana, did hash a couple of times. We were drinking quite a bit. 
But yeah, I was messed up. I lost two two soccer scholarships senior year because of my grades. At the end of junior year, I was offered because uh, I was playing keeper at, for the Evanston soccer team. This and, is Evanston High School. Evanston Township High School, yeah. And that was pretty good. I love soccer because I'd grown up in a Eastern Euro- or European family in Chicago. We'd go out to Humboldt Park and there'd be 20 on a side playing soccer. I loved the game. Uh, Beloit College and Washington University in St. Louis had offered me if I maintained, you know, if I did well senior year, I could. Uh, they would offer me a scholarship to go play soccer. And senior year, we were undefeated. I had eight shutouts in 10 games and only two goals against the whole season. So I, I could have gone, but I was messed up. And I was really, I was a good student up till junior year. I was a good student. And at the end of the year, you know, I just, things just went downhill because my dad and I were having some real issues. And uh, so, so, I, so you're wandering. You're trying to find yourself. Yeah, I had. I realized now because of my education and my training as a psychologist, actually, that I had very poor self-efficacy and self-image was. I didn't have one. So at this time, you're eligible for the draft, and you know you're going to be drafted. Yeah, probably. I got at, at the end of uh, end of 1960 semester that ended in <clears throat> May of '66. I was. I was flunking out, so Roosevelt just suggested I come back when I was want to be serious about being a student. And I got actually reclassified as 1A pretty quickly, and I knew I was going to go. So that's when I decided, why don't I join the Marines? And I actually can remember thinking that I said, if I come back, great, I can go to school. If I don't come back, who cares? That's how I went into the Marines. So you go to boot camp, and while you're at boot camp, you get your draft notice. The Army wants Jim Weinstein. My dad, yeah, the draft notice came to the house, and my dad, I don't know what he was thinking, but he, he well, it's his mail. So he sent it to me in boot camp, and you know, we didn't get our mail right away because it went through several layers, and we were in formation. There was 84 guys in my platoon, and I hear, Weinstein, front and center. Oh, shit. <laughs> So I, I I do the you know back out. I did a perfect left turn. I did another right turn, right turn. Got in front of the gunny and and I do a left turn. I'm staying at attention, looking over his head because you don't look him in the eyes. And he he takes his piece of paper and puts it right in my face. I mean, I think it was touching my nose. He said, "You want to be in the army?" I said, "Uh, no, sir." <laughs> I don't know what they ever did with the draft notice, but I never went in the army. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so you're a marine. Yeah. Well, it took a few months to get there, but yeah. you know, I was pretty proud of that. And did you know at that time you were going to be bound for Vietnam? I Well, when I enlisted, I pretty much had an idea of what was going on because in 1966, things were going crazy, and there's a lot of Marines. In fact, the engineer unit I went to, 7th Engineers, 1st Marine Division, they had gone over in 65, and I knew that that was a good choice. Yeah, it was likely that I was going to go. So fast forward now to your arrival in Vietnam. You're on a 707, mm. and you're flying into where? Da Nang. Okay, what happens? Well, the 707 does a wingtip to the right down, and then the pilot, he must have been a former uh, uh, fighter jock because he flew that thing like it was. And we were about you know several hundred yards outside the outer marker, and we were, we were pretty low. And uh, we took a, a large caliber round through the bulkhead, Above, about five rows in front of me, and it hit one of the Marines, and they had to carry him out. And I don't, I don't think he made it. And that was my welcome to Vietnam. 
What are, what's going through your head at that point? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, we're pretty brainwashed by then. It's like, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? And you're how old are you then? 19. So a 19-year-old is still pretty gung-ho, even though you're, you've witnessed death and you've been threatened with your own yep. mortality at that point in yep. time. So you get on the ground in Nam and you're, you're set to go and you're, you become an embarkation NCO. What is it? It sounds like a, a boring... Oh, absolutely. In fact, <laughs> you don't have a choice because we, we learned our MOS, Military Occupational Service, back in boot camp. And I knew I was going to be an embarkation NCO. So I went, when I got to California before I went overseas, I went to embarkation training in Coronado Island. And uh, we did a lot of loading ships and going out. Wait, before you go too far, uh, what does it mean? Uh, the embarkation NCO plans the loading of the ships okay. and plans the movement. What vehicles get loaded in what order and where they get loaded and doing paperwork and a lot of crazy stuff so you were not an embarkation nco very long because it got it wasn't your style you asked permission to do something else the first day i got there all these senior ncos are putting piles of stuff on my desk say you do this and they were all outside smoking cigars and drinking coffee and you know i had a stack of papers i went on my desk one time was about 12 inches high I was really getting harassed a lot for not getting my work done. So I saw the colonel. He was out. Uh, I think we were near the mess hall. He was just kind of inspecting, and I went up to him and asked permission to speak to him and saluted him first. He said, what's the matter? And I said, well, sir. And I told him the story. He said, yeah, I think he knew. I said, you know, this is not why I joined the Marines. I want to I have a responsible job where I can say I contributed. So he said, well, you can do convoy duty. And so I did convoy duty, and I'm up on the 50 caliber machine gun. We called it a mod deuce. These engineers are down on the ground, uh, one's with a metal detector, and he finds something, and another guy with his K-bar would go down and, and have to probe for the mine. And so they look at me, I'm sitting there just leaning. I said, <laughs> like, get down here. We're going to teach you how to do this. So I got cross-trained as a thir- combat engineer of 1371, and that's how he spent that tour, the rest of the tour. That's a very, very tough job at great risk. And you said, be careful what you ask for. Exactly. But you know, I was really proud. And I still am proud of the fact that I did that, but I have a lot of survivors killed because I have a lot of friends who didn't make it. You're also, as a combat engineer, a tunnel rat. Well, that, you know, we were out for the infantry. They'd find booby traps or trip wires or whatever. We had to disarm them. There's a lot of other stuff, but, you know, they came across a tunnel system. They're all standing around, look at this tunnel. I said, well, somebody's got to go in there. And they uh, called engineers up, and I'm like, oh, no. And I got there, and they're all saying, not it, not it. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. I, you know, pretty crazy then, young and stupid. And uh, it was scary stuff. Right, so you enter the tunnel and you're armed with a, what a 45 and a flashlight. Exactly. And what happens? I learned real quick not to put the flashlight in front of me. Because you're going to take fire. Exactly. So I had the flashlight out to the side and I had my flashlight out to the other side, and uh, I learned quickly that was the way you did it. I mean, they told me that's what I should do, so yeah, that's why I did it. Did you take fire that time? Uh, I don't remember it was that time, but a couple other times I did. And it was like, why am I doing this? 
be careful what you ask for, man. And on some of those occasions, you found fairly elaborate tunnels with big rooms. I think you said one, one was a yeah, well, hospital room. Yeah, well, I think it was because there were all kinds of mats on the ground and uh, bloody bandages and some gore and some medical equipment, just IV bottles mm-hmm. and syringes and stuff. And there was a lot of that stuff laying around. Your uh, battalion at one point lost a lot of men during a period of time. They lost... The battalion was deployed in June of 65. I got there in yeah early 67, January, early January. They had already been there almost two years. They departed in, I want to say, August 71. And in the five years, six years they were deployed, we lost 125 Marines and three corpsmen. The bad guys were... They had command detonated mines, and when you're down probing for a mine, they love to detonate the mine, do stuff like that. Or, you know, up on bulldozers, you're pretty much a sitting target, and trucks, and, you know, laying laying a ramp to fix the airstrip for helicopters. And, uh, yeah, we were pretty much sitting ducks when we were doing our jobs. And given the nature of your job, were you all pretty fatalistic? Pretty did much. You, did you think you were not going to make it home? You know, at some point, we just stopped thinking about that. We would... Uh, a lot of humor talking about the women we left behind, you know, what we're going to do when we get home. But, you know, and then we drank a lot of beer at night and uh, tried to drown it out. But we, I don't remember ever thinking that. I'm sure I did, but I can't remember it. You put that stuff out of your mind. I got pretty numb about stuff, and I didn't cry for almost 50 years. So when I got home, it was really bad. We'll get to that. Yep. You were wounded. Well, a couple of them were just band-aids and iodine. And, uh, shrapnel? And shrapnel. And, and uh, I, we were called out to man the perimeter because there were sappers in the compound, and I stubbed my, or cut my toe on a nail sticking out of the plywood floor. And, uh, you know, they were going to give me a purple heart. I said, I don't want to be in that, that ceremony where they're saying, at one point, Corporal Weinstein hurt his toe going out of the hooch and under fire. I'm like, yeah, I don't want that metal. <laughs> I should say Because you stand in front of the whole battalion, they're going to be laughing at you. I'm like, yeah, I don't need that. That's not going to happen. That's right. not going to happen. But yeah, I turned down three hearts because of minor injuries. And we were putting our friends in body bags. I didn't want to, I, I just couldn't accept it. Then Tet begins in 68. And where are you? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we were drinking a lot of beer in the evenings and going to work hungover in the morning, which is not a good thing, but you're 19, 20 years old and, you know, you got a lot of stress and the only way you can relieve it is, you know, drinking a lot of beer and getting numb and going back to your hooch. So the colonel, you know, he knew about that. He said, I got to, you got I got to dry you out. So I'm going to send you with mail and resupply for the first platoon up with 7th Engineers. So I, the chopper I was on landed, it was a big, we call them Jolly Greens. <laughs> You know, shaped like a sort of a, a a banana. So they had a lot of gear on there and a lot of troops. I'm pretty sure that I was the last guy off the chopper, and as we're headed to the bunker, somebody yells, incoming. And so I just dove into this bunker, and about the time I dove into the bunker, a mortar round hit the chopper we'd just come in. And that was my ride out. So, And that's when the siege really started. We were getting a lot of rockets and mortars and artillery shells. And you don't know, you didn't know then whether anybody on board the chopper was killed. Yeah, I, don't, I still don't know. I, <clears throat> I don't imagine because, you know, when, it, when they landed and they were unloading the chopper, I'm sure the pilots got out to go to the head or something. 
go have a cup of coffee. I don't think it was on. It might have been a lot of supplies on there. I'm wondering with your head buried in a bunker and you've just experienced an explosion like that, uh-huh. you slowly get up and you see that the chopper's in flames and it's done. What's well, rolling around in your head at okay, that point? I, I'm trying not to use profanity, but the first thing that went my head is, oh, shit, <laughs> what have I done? But, you know, I, you quickly get past that and you, uh, you, know, you go back to your training and you steal yourself and you don't think about it because if you do you might not make it you had some moments when there was a a, a mortality check you got whacked upside the head yeah. and you when you walk in to i think this was Quezon, and you find a friend of yours no who, that was back in the battalion area after i'd come back uh, it was later in the year what uh, happened i'd just come in out of the field and, you know, we were up at the, uh, the NCO club drinking beer and playing cards and swapping lies. And uh, I'll just use his first name, Michael. I got to be good friends with him. So we go back to the hooch and, you know, we hit the rack pretty early because I knew I had to get up in the morning to go somewhere. Middle of the night, so dark 30, we had uh, been awakened by the siren. You know, they had a, a crank siren like they do in some of the movies. We knew when you heard that, you're in, you know, it's time to grab your gear and hit the hit the uh, assigned places out on the perimeter. And so mine was close to the uh, motor pool, and there was a, a bunker maybe 20 yards away, 30 yards away, and that was manned by some other Marines with a floodlight. We were there pretty much all night taking sniper rounds, and, and we, we knew the sappers were in the compound, so we were taking rounds from behind. So it was kind of a tenuous situation. And we you know, made it to daylight, and the corpsman comes over and says, uh, we got a KIA in the bunker. I need help. So I said, okay. You know, I jumped up because I wanted to help my, my, you know, you're trained, no man left behind. And, you know, the whole thing is really ingrained in your head. And so I went over to the bunker with a stretcher with him, and it was my friend Michael that I'd been drinking beer with earlier that day. there you are looking down at your friend's face yeah it was it's still yeah it's still there when we carried michael over to sick bay i look over to the side and there's these three or four canvas stretchers with dead nva and i look over and there's the guy that shaved me that day when i got in from the field i got a haircut and a shave from this guy with a straight razor and here's here is and he was the guy that they got caught going to the command bunker with a satchel charge to try to kill the colonel. Apparently, he had a map of the compound on him. So yeah. That, so he's NVA, but he managed to ingrain his himself with uh, yeah. the base, and he gets in and he's working for you. Yeah. And he gives you a straight razor shave. Oh uh, yeah. I'll never forget that. Never forget that. I think I was, the hand of God was on my shoulder all the whole time I was there. There are other times. I remember one time, and I was young and stupid, and we were a patrol, maybe a squad of Marines. And I said, hey, I want you, why don't you let me walk point? And the sergeant says, you crazy? I said, yeah, I want to try this. I'm always at the back of the line. I said, okay, you lead us. Be careful. You know what you're looking for. Look for tripwire. I said, yeah, I know what I'm looking for. (laughs) 
And so we got to a, a fork in the path, and I remember distinctly a voice in my head saying, go left. And so we went left. And the squad behind me went right, and they got wiped out. I had a few more of those, but that was the most, the most memorable. I'm sorry, I just, sometimes it's tough. But yeah, yeah, the voice in my head said, go left. And we went and left. The hand of God, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's such a thing as coincidence either. I think everything that happens in your life is, you know, is for a reason. Did, did you want to be baptized at some point? Yeah, I did. Uh, actually, and you're over there. You're in Vietnam. Yeah. And, and what, what percolates that decision? Easter Sunday in 1967. And I, when I got there, because I had been going to the church services and boot camp, and when I was a kid, I would walk my elderly grandmother over to St. Hyacinth's the Catholic Church. I didn't understand a word the priest was saying, but, you know, learning how to pray. And... Uh, so I, I, it was part of my, you know, thought process. So I, I introduced myself to the chaplain, and I became the battalion lay leader. And I st- he said, "Have you been baptized?" I said, "Well, probably when I was an infant, but I don't remember." So he said, "Well, you want to be baptized?" I said, "Sure." So we went out with a bunch of my friends in the truck, with the fifty caliber machine gun and a bunch of weapons to, you know, just in case. And we we're actually only about five miles south of the city of Way at the time. And that plays a big part of the Tet Offensive in 68. And so uh, he, you know, I got pictures somewhere of him dunking me, and right after that <clears throat> I was underwater, and all of a sudden he drops me and takes off running. I'm like, holy cow. I stand up, and I see these five guys on shore. We were about maybe 100 yards offshore, maybe. It was a sandbar, and we were pretty far out. They were shooting me, and my guys in the jeep or in the truck were shooting at them. And I'm like, "Holy cow, this is what this is!" And I swam deeper. You're being baptized, and you're getting shot at. Yep. I used to joke about baptism by fire, but I don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You think you just did? (laughs) You spent a lot of time living in trenches. Well, in Quezon, we were always living in trenches or bunkers, but they're always usually below ground because if they were up above ground, there were more targets for the the uh, artillery and mortar rounds to aim at. And so we were, you know, actually living like World War One in trenches and you know bunkers we dug or big bunk big you know square things we dug out, but it was attached to a trench, so we didn't have to get up above the ground to go down to the line front line. So yeah. If you're sitting in a trench and you've got a B-52 strike going on nearby, what, what is that like? I imagine it shakes the ground like you wouldn't believe. Well, we called them arc light missions, and they would call them in because we knew we were surrounded. They knew we were, the, the headquarters knew we were surrounded. And, you know, like a mile and a half away in the middle of the night, these things would come in. You couldn't see them. You couldn't hear them because they were so high. And all of a sudden the ground the, it's like daylight and all these loud noises. You had to cover your ears because you could get burst eardrums. And I remember being awake in the middle of the night, actually bounced off the ground, and the ground was shaking. It was like I thought, okay, this is what this is what hell looks like. And yeah, that happened a couple times. Did any of the strikes 
uh, come close to you guys? Yeah, but you know, we knew they were coming in, so we took cover in the bunkers. The, the worst thing was maybe 100 yards away from our perimeter wire, there are a couple of uh, fast movers, we call them fast movers. The uh, Air Force and the Marines and Navy were flying out several different planes, but they were laying down napalm. And I got a burn on my arm from sticking my head up and just a little piece burning on my arm. But I got it off quick and I got a scar from it. But, yeah, it was interesting because when those things hit the ground, the jelly gasoline would suck all the oxygen out of the air. And you could feel it from 100 yards away. Probably one of your worst experiences happened uh, that affected your family uh, because they are told that you are dead. Yep. Explain that. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> it was probably November of 67, and we had gone to China Beach, and we were drinking a lot of beer, and then we came back as usual. We went back to our hooch, and it's like in the middle of the night, you know, you got to go to the head. So you, and the heads were these plywood things with benches on both sides and screen wire and a metal roof, and, uh, and there were like six holes, three on each side, maybe four. I don't remember. I didn't count. And I'm sitting near the edge reading Stars and Stripes by Moonlight, and I hear a mortar round leave a tube. I'm like, okay. And I look out the screen wire, and it's about 50 yards away. And I hear another mortar round leave the tube, and it's like 30 yards away. When I heard the third round leave, <laughs> I kind of ran out of everything, my sandals, my skivvies. I had my flag jacket. And as I dove into the bunker, it hit the bunker, and I took a bunch of small pieces of metal shrapnel. And that's why I had to go down to China Beach to get x-rayed, and I took my dog tags off, and I put them on a bench. I went out one door, and apparently they'd brought in a KIA with no dog tags, and they had dog tags here, so they put them together with him. And it was just before I went to Quezon, and uh, the Marines sent the body home to my parents because Jim Weinstein was no longer they sent the body home? Yeah, they sent that that body was unrecognizable. I'm sure they didn't have an open casket or an open yeah, open casket. And so. did did it was it preceded by a letter to your folks? I don't your know. Son? I I think that the Marines actually came to the house to tell them that I was coming home that way. And the chaplain probably. And did you talk to your <clears throat> folks after well, we'll get into that. You weren't dead. You were very much alive. Pretty much. Jim Weinstein is living, but somebody thinks he's, the Marine Corps thinks you were dead. Yep. How'd you straighten that out? Well, I finally got out of Quezon, and 75 days later, so I was like, the 82nd Airborne came up Route 1 and fought their way up and drove the, the bad guys away, and that's how we got liberated from Quezon. <clears throat> so we got back, and there wasn't anybody around because most of the people that knew me had been rotated back. And so these people are, who are you? <laughs> and apparently my records had been sent to graves and registration, everything. I had nothing. You, did you have any knowledge that the Corps thought you were dead at that point? No, I didn't. You didn't know? I didn't know. So <clears throat> I, you know, I went to Okinawa, and that was kind of messed up. But, and so I didn't have travel orders. I didn't have ID. So they gave me temporary travel orders. They gave me a temporary ID. And they were still looking for my records. And so I went home. I went to uh, the air base, the Kadena Air Base in Okinawa and flew to Hawaii. And then we got off the plane in Hawaii. We had a little layover, so I called my parents. And they said, 
who's this? I said, it's your son. They said, no, Jim's dead. Don't call again. I said, well, I'm going to be at O'Hare tonight. And if you're not there, I'll figure out a way to get home. I got off the, and on the airplane. There were a lot of guys flying from Hawaii back home, and uh, they were buying me a lot of drinks in celebration. <laughs> and so when I got off the plane, I was you know, a little tipsy. And, but you know, I was like 40 pounds lighter than I went over, 30 pounds lighter because I had malaria and pneumonia at the same time. But I was walking wounded. I still did my job. And so I get off the plane in civilian clothes with you know, a white band around my head where my cover had covered it with no, you know, hair. I got a haircut in, in uh, Okinawa, so it was like clean, high and tight. And then on top of my head was a tuft of hair. And they looked straight at me and they didn't know who I was till I said, hey, I'm home. <laughs> oh, no. But your folks did go to the airport. They went to the airport, yeah. So they, they might have thought that they, this could be you? Yeah, they, I said, well, I called them. I said, I'm going to be at O'Hare tonight if you're not there. Yeah, you know, whatever. And so they showed up because I told them I'll be there at a certain time. And I'm coming in on American Airlines, Continental maybe. I don't remember the airline. But I knew what time I was supposed to land, and they were there. What happened? Well, Did you grab them? They had they a lot of tears. You? I was surrounded by my, uh, my two sisters and my two brothers and my parents. And uh, my older sister, she was five years older. I don't think she was living at home yet. But they called her and said, hey, Jim's coming home. So they all showed up. <clears throat> and uh, there were a lot of tears. And we got back to the house the next day because I didn't have any civilian clothes. I just had my uniform, which is my sea bag. That's the only thing I had. My dad was kind of upset because he had to give the $10,000 back. He was still an angry man. But that's okay. This was the... That was my reception. Payment. Yeah. This was the payment for the death your benefit. passing. Death yeah, benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Did the Corps ever say after the fact, we're, we're really sorry about this mix-up? Yeah. We've told your folks that you're dead. You're very much alive. What did they say? Well, the Marines never said anything, but the corpsman that I met at uh, the, my next duty station, we talked a lot, and he said, well, you know, it wasn't their fault, and, you know, you, know, you got a promotion. So, uh, you know, that was it. You said you hadn't cried in 50 years. Right. And what changed you? Well, the first time I remember crying, because you know, I went I went to see Helen and she was you know, engaged. And so I, there was a, another young person that I met before I went in the Marines. And Marianne was, you know, and I had her number at home. I had a phone book that I had. So I called her up and said, hey, uh, you want to go out? <laughs> so we did. We ended up, that was in, I got home in August and uh, for a leave, and I asked her, could we date? And so she said, yeah. So uh, we dated a little while, and then I had to go back to my duty station. And, you know, we got to know each other by mail and phone calls. So when I got home, I said, uh, you know, will you marry me? She said, okay. We got married in January, December 68. We were married 43 years. We found out that she had multiple sclerosis and it was probably over 20 years that she was diagnosed and she got progressively worse and I lost her in uh, May of 2012. But before she died, because I told her about Helen 
And before she died, she said, I should find Helen because old jarheads need somebody to tell them how to run their lives. So it must have been a couple months later, I got up the nerve to find Helen. I found her on Facebook. Helen was your girl in high school, and she's your wife now. Exactly. We were married eight years. Well, this is a high school love rekindled. Yeah. Well, we realized we were still in love with each other. Childhood love, I love you, guess you'd call it. It turned into something really special. There were a lot of things that changed her life, weren't there? Yeah, a lot. When you look back now, there are, I'm sure, things you wish had gone another way, decisions you would have changed. Yep. Looking back now, would you still have enlisted? I, I'm very proud of being a Marine. And it's still, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. I believe that sincerely. I was very proud of serving my country. But I'm a lot wiser and a lot more mature when I look back at the government. We should have never been in Vietnam. There were many times when I wished General Lewis Moreland or uh, I wish they'd been out there with us just one day. Turns out, I believe that was all for economics because, you know, wars caused money to go into the, the industrial world to create all the weapons and ammunition. And it creates, a, it stimulates the economy. So I'm believing that that's why we were there. We were fighting a World War II style war in a, in a guerrilla fight. It just didn't work. giving back in another uh, in, a, in a, a very rewarding way now because you've gotten yourself and Helen involved with uh, Honor Flight Chicago. Actually, 2017, I believe, she comes to me and says, I just signed you up for this. I'm like, what? And I was supposed to fly probably in 19, but you know, the pandemic. pandemic. At one point, I was number 400 on the list. Now there's over 2,500 on the list. So tell me of your experience <coughs> when you got there. What was it like for you? It was the best welcome home, or the, the largest, most significant welcome home many of us ever got. Because when we got home, we were called baby killers, and we were just, it was, we didn't tell, for years I didn't tell anybody I'd been in the Marine Corps. I, I just didn't share it because I was afraid that Kent State was happening, all kinds of things were going on, There's SDS were demonstrating, and you didn't talk about your military. Let my hair grow out long, I looked like a hippie. <laughs> Here's what you wrote when you came home from your honor flight Chicago. It is the first time since I got home from Nam that I was welcomed back. For 50 years after I got back, I couldn't cry. Well, it's six days after the flight, and I still have a lump in my throat, which I hope never goes away. It's there right now. Uh, taps just destroys me. Um, I mean, just Veterans Day. It's tough. Marine Corps birthday is even tougher. I have 24 close personal friends on the wall. And in that book you're looking at, there's a picture of me standing at the wall saying goodbye to my friend Michael. And there's a picture of him that my nephew pulled up and we got printed out. And uh, I'm proud of my service. I'd do it again if I were less aware of what I was going to be facing. But now, I'm not sure, but I'm proud that I served. I'm really proud that I put in the time. And uh, Marine Corps is always going to be in my heart. I got a tattoo with the Eagle Globe and Anchor. It's the only tattoo I have. And uh, I can't fit into my uniforms anymore because I've gotten fat and old. But you know, I'm proud of 
you know, who I was and who I became. Mainly the Marine Corps shaped my life into becoming a responsible human being. And I'm proud of the things I did and have done since then. Hey, thanks. My pleasure. I absolutely thanks. hope I've done some good to somebody. I think, and I, yeah. pre- and I appreciate you, man. Our deep thanks to Jim and wife Helen for their service and dedicated assistance to Honor Flight Chicago. We hope you learned from this Honor Thank Inspire podcast. If you did, please consider sharing it and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.